This feels kind of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know why, but like, I kind of feel like like mom and dad aren't here. <laughs> we can kind of do whatever we want, which doesn't make any sense because in that metaphor, I'm kind of like mom and dad. But uh, it's good to see all of you again, or, or many of you. Um, uh, last week, uh, I didn't think this would be happening this week, that's for sure. feels like maybe we took the wrong Tuesday off, but thank you all for being flexible. Uh, it was good to uh, stay home with my family last week and to just have a Tuesday to just hang out. Um, but I was ready uh, to go again today and, and to see all of you. Um, tonight we're talking about something that's it's, it's sort of abstract. It's not like a really concrete concept, or at least it isn't in my brain. So uh, I don't exactly know how tonight is going to go, but we're going to find out together. Uh, and the way I want to start talking about this is I, I want you to, I'm going to say um, a couple of just different labels, categories of people. I want you in your head to think good person or bad person. Just whatever immediately comes to your mind, don't overthink it. Uh, but also don't say your answer out loud. Uh, I guess if you're at home, you can totally do that. That's fine. But uh, if you're here, don't. <laughs> okay? All right, let's do this. Anti-vaxxer. Progressive. Joe Rogan fan, a racial justice activist, QAnon supporter, fully vaxxed and boosted, Floridians, people who can't drive in the snow, people who unironically un like the band U2. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry about that last one. I'm also kidding about Florida and people who can't drive in the snow. But uh, just about everyone, if we're honest, has a knee-jerk reaction uh, about whether these, these things that I just said are labeling a good person or a bad person. And the chances are, the closer any of these labels come to applying to you, the better you think of the people who it applies to. But what's the problem with all of these labels? None of these descriptors by themselves are enough information for you to make the judgment that I asked you to make. But we, always, we all have this like instant like good, bad. If someone holds that position, good or bad. Why do we have this need to categorize people so quickly, so fundamentally on such little information? How, how do we judge what makes someone good? We live in a culture right now that, that conditions us to make these judgments based off of single labels. And, and the culture that Jesus lived in wasn't all that different. Uh, it, they wrestled with the same questions, different issues, different labels, but the same fundamental question of, of how do we judge what makes someone good? Who's in and who's out? And, as you might imagine, as he tended to do, Jesus has a way of completely shattering that entire paradigm, those entire uh, categories. So tonight we're looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Uh, if you remember, at the very beginning of the series, the first week we talked about uh, Jesus calling his disciples and instantly kind of seeing the best part of them and calling them to that, that identity, 
And as he invited them to follow him, he told them, I'm not going to tell you what this looks like. I want you to come and experience this. Come and see. And that theme of come and see is something that we've been coming back to over and over and over again. The second week, we looked at uh, the very first instance of Jesus um, performing a miracle in person, which was turning a bunch of water into wine at a wedding, a huge celebration. We talked about the overabundance of God's goodness. Uh, two weeks ago, Shana talked about the, the, what happened just before the, the t- story that we're looking at tonight, where Jesus is in the temple, and he, he finds uh, the outer court completely crowded with people selling animals, which um, is weird in and of itself, but also blocks any Gentiles from being able to worship. And he goes through and just clears the place out and clears all the animals out and runs everyone out and basically says, like, you are turning this place of worship into a, a robber's den. And so we're picking up immediately after that scene, immediately after Jesus has just kind of freaked people out, clearing out the temple. Uh, And so actually, I'm going to read the very end of chapter 2, and then we'll start chapter 3. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 say this. During the time that he was in Jerusalem, those those days of the Passover feast, many people noticed the signs he was displaying, and seeing they pointed straight to God, entrusted their lives to him. But Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out, knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. That's the setup for our story. Jesus is in this context where he does not trust the people that are around him. He can see right through them. This is not the the, the thing that you want to be said right before you're introduced into a story. But that's what happens here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing and God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. In just those two verses, we have tons of information about this guy. The first thing that we're told is that he's a Pharisee. We've talked about Pharisees a lot, but to very reductionistically kind of sum up what Pharisees are about, they were the sect of Judaism that basically decided that the the things that were wrong in the world and specifically wrong with Israel was completely caused by people not adhering to God's law. And so they thought, let's make really strict rules that are actually more strict than God's law so that we don't even come close to breaking the law. If we do all of these rules and follow everything correctly, God will be happy, God will keep us safe. If we don't, God will be angry and Israel will continue to suffer under foreign rule like Rome. So there's this heavy emphasis on doing the right thing. Of uh, It was very logical, it was very linear. It was like, you do these things, God loves you. Everything's good. If you don't, everything's bad. It was pretty straightforward. On top of that, Pharisees were the primary opponents to this other group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the people who ran the temple, among other things. So it's possible Nicodemus saw Jesus clear out the temple courts and is like, this is a good guy. This is a guy that might be on my team. I'm going to go talk to him. But we're also told that Nicodemus visits Jesus at night, which means he doesn't want other people knowing that he's going to see Jesus. So he's curious about Jesus, but not... Like, he's not really fully committing. He's kind of staying in the shadows a little bit. Okay, picking back up. Nicodemus has just said, 
obviously you're from God or you couldn't be doing all these things. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born from above talk? Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, you see just that, a body that you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something that you can't see and touch, the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough that the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Okay, I think if you're a normal person reading this, you think, what on earth was that? What on earth did I just read? And I think Nicodemus is feeling the exact same way and just kind of comes out and says, he's like, what are you talking about? Jesus like right away instantly hits this guy who comes from this really literal and linear and logical way of thinking and and just hits him with something completely out of left field. Nicodemus says, I know you're from God. And Jesus says, yes, and you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. I was just paying you a compliment, man. Now I don't know what we're talking about. Like, what, what do you mean? And Jesus makes it obvious, well, sort of obvious. He, he says, I'm not talking about something literal. Like, we're talking about a spiritual reality here. That little bit that Jesus says about, like, you, you experience the wind. You see the, the, the leaves move, but you don't know where the wind comes from. You have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. Jesus is trying to say to him, this idea that you have to be born from above or born again isn't something that you're going to be able to just intellectually ascend to. Like, this is something that you're going to have to experience to understand. You trust the wind. You've seen the wind, but you don't actually understand the wind. This is like that. This is Jesus echoing that same theme that we've been talking about. He's saying, come and see. I can't explain this thing to you in terms that you're going to understand without you just experiencing what I'm talking about. So then Nicodemus asks again, what do you mean by this? How does this happen? And Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel and you don't know the basics. Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I've seen in my own eyes. There's nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you of things that you can't see, the things of God? No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man, which is Jesus. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. So, 
Jesus sort of alluded to a story there that if you don't know what he's talking about, again, this makes no sense. So in the book of Numbers, which is two books after Exodus, which we talked about a lot this past fall, uh, Moses is still leading the people of Israel around the desert. It's two books later, and they're still still going around. Um, and there's this story where serpents kind of infiltrate the camp, and they're biting people left and right, and people are dying. And uh, Moses uh, asks God, like, can you... <laughs> I think the people cry out to God, like, help us. So God tells Moses, make this... A serpent out of bronze and hold it up in the air for people to see. And anyone who's been bitten by a snake, if they look at that and remember me, they will be healed. So it's, it's this interesting story where these people like physically have this burning venom coursing through their veins that is going to kill them. And simply looking to this reminder of who God is cures them. And Jesus is saying that's what, how I'm functioning on a spiritual level. You all are, are dying. You have the venom of sin coursing through your veins, and I am here for you to look at and, and be healed and restored to God through. He, he says a few times here, I, I am here for you to see and believe. We hear believe and we think intellectual assent. We think just having the right opinions or, or holding to the right uh, beliefs. But believe is a very active kind of word here. It's not just intellectual sense. It is that, but more. It is belief that is, is your whole life's work. It is action. It is holistic. It is um, moving your entire life in the direction of this truth that you hold. And then, so Jesus has just said that, and then we come to one of, as I alluded to, one of the most famous verses in Scripture, John 3.16, and I, in case you haven't noticed, I'm reading from the message version, so this is going to sound a little bit different than you're used to, and I'm hoping that helps you hear it in a new way tonight. So this is John 3.16 through 18, or actually, we're going to go through 21. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. He came to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust uh, him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light, so the work can be seen for the God work it is. Those are huge statements, obviously, that Jesus makes. But remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a Pharisee who is very um, just conditioned to have these ideas of who is good and who is bad and what do I have to do to be good. And Jesus says, I, I am salvation. I'm not here to tell people how bad they are. I'm not here to shame people. I'm not here to tell you who's in and who's out. I came to help 
I came to rescue, I came to restore, I came to save. I came to help you run towards the light rather than flee to darkness. So let's kind of recap what is going on here. Nicodemus is someone with a very clear picture of what makes someone good or bad. So clear, in fact, that that his group of people, the Pharisees, policed everyone else's words and deeds to make sure that no one slipped up. And if they did slip up, this group let them know in really harsh and, and shaming ways. You had to be perfect. He's part of this tradition that says that you can't say certain things. You can't do certain things. You can't think certain things. Again, as long as you do the right things, God is happy and you're good. If you do the wrong things, God is angry and you're bad. It's very black and white. In Nicodemus' understanding, uh, you earn God's love and approval. There's a formula to it all. But again, he shows up at night because he's curious that perhaps his conception of the world is flawed. And Jesus tells him, somewhat confusingly, but somewhat beautifully, mysteriously, Jesus says, yeah, there's no formula. You have to be born again, which makes no literal sense. We've heard that so much that it's just sort of like, such a Christian phrase that you don't think about how nonsensical it would be to hear someone say that to you for the first time if you're asking them what to do with your life. Nicodemus wants something cut and dry that he can be sure of. He wants a box to check. But Jesus says there's, there's no formula. <laughs> I'm sorry. There is no earning this. God has already made his decision. He loves you. And he loves the whole world. What are you going to do with that? You must be born of the Spirit. That's not something you can intellectually ascend to. It's something that's formed in you as you keep your eyes on Christ, like that serpent in the desert that was healing people bit by snakes. We have to keep our eyes on Christ. As we follow Christ, as we believe in Christ, The Spirit forms in you. You are transformed into being born again. That's what matters. It's abstract. It's mysterious. But Jesus is saying this is what counts. Not rules, not opinions, not traditions, not positions. There's no earning being good or bad. God already loves you. That's the whole reason why Jesus is here, because God already decided that he loves us. How you react to God's love, what the Spirit is or isn't forming in you, is what matters. Now, that's, that's where this story ends, which is interesting, because we don't hear any more from Nicodemus. He just sort of fades to the background, and so we don't know what he's thinking. We don't know how he responded to this. And based on how he was introduced, we're supposed to be really skeptical of this guy. But if you keep reading, you find out that later on, Nicodemus um, defends Jesus to the Pharisees. He, he puts himself and his position and his, uh, his social position and his power in his culture at risk by defending Jesus to his own people. And then at the very end of the story, Nicodemus shows back up and is actually one of two people that helps uh, 
pay for and bury Jesus. So we don't know how he responds in the moment, but it's clear that something that Jesus says hooks him. And he becomes, he comes to believe that following Christ is the only thing that matters. Eventually, our reaction to Jesus is made clear one way or another in our lives. And so I, this, this is kind of a hard concept to apply, but this is what was really on my heart today as I was uh, thinking about this. I don't, I don't know where you are as it relates to Jesus tonight or just as it relates to being a human, where in the process of development you are. Maybe you're here tonight and you're curious that perhaps your conceptions of the world are, are not perfect. Maybe your thinking is flawed. Maybe the way that you've conceived of reality is wrong. Maybe you're someone who's really worried about doing the right things, about being a good person, and whether you are or not. Maybe you're one of those people that's really concerned with letting other people know when they're doing the wrong thing. Maybe you're someone who's weighed down by trying to earn God's love. This story, through this story, Jesus says to all of us that none of that is what matters. God's already made his decision about you. God already loves you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If God still needed to make a decision up about you, we wouldn't be here talking about any of this. There is no earning God's love. There is no proving yourself to be good. What matters is how you react to the love that God already has for you. What matters, again, is keeping your eyes on Jesus, of pointing your life in the direction of Christ and following him and actively believing in him. And as you do, the Spirit forms you into the person that God created you to be. That person who you truly are the person who Jesus sees when he sees you, the person whom God has already looked at and called very good. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that um, we don't have to earn your love. Thank you that how you feel about us is not up to us. God, I pray that we would respond to that love by keeping our eyes on you, by following you. God, I pray that in each of us, you would form us into that person that you created us to be as we follow after you, as we point our lives towards Christ together. We love you, God. Amen.